Oh, will you please stand as we hear the word of God? Do give careful attention to the hearing of God's word. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, reading from the first verse. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In love, he, that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, predestined us, For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Please be seated. It's been really a tremendous privilege and pleasure for Joan and I to be with you these past few days. We have loved meeting with you. You've been welcoming beyond measure. And we thank the Lord for you. And we trust that the Lord will continue to enrich your life as a congregation, that he will add to your numbers, that he will always give you under-shepherds after his own heart, and that he will send people out from this congregation to the ends of the earth to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. 
We have been reflecting these past occasions, Friday evening, Saturday and this morning, on the nature and distinguishing marks of authentic, true-hearted discipleship. What does it really mean to belong to Jesus Christ, to be savingly attached to Jesus Christ, and thereby to be a follower of Jesus Christ? We need to know that because the Scriptures speak to us very plainly of false-hearted disciples, people who looked the part, who spoke the part, but had no saving attachment to Jesus Christ. We need to know what a true disciple is in order that we, by the grace of God, may look at our poor, stumbling lives and say, by the grace of God, I'm not what I will yet be, but by his saving mercy, I'm not what I once was. We saw that true discipleship begins with the new birth, with the sovereign Glorious, mysterious work of God the Holy Spirit coming to us, implanting new life within us, enabling us to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. The new birth is essential to true-hearted discipleship. And we saw that true-hearted disciples sink their lives into the word of Christ. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. True disciples not only hear the word, not only attend the means of grace where that word is proclaimed in word and in sacrament, they sink their lives into that word. That word shapes and styles everything that they are. We saw that true-hearted disciples seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. There are many claims upon us. But the primary claim upon a true-hearted disciple of Jesus is that they seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And we've seen also that true-hearted disciples go on and do not turn back. I don't mean that they don't falter. I don't mean that they don't stumble. I don't even mean that there may be occasions when they drift even far away. But because they are savingly United, attached to Jesus Christ, they ever return to him. For to whom else can they go? He alone has the words of eternal life. We need to be clear in our minds what a true disciple of Jesus Christ is. What I'd like to do in this, in this final sermon 
is to somewhat change the tempo, if I can put it like that, to change the tempo of what we have been thinking these past occasions and focus exclusively on the greatest privilege that belongs to true-hearted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in these verses in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In love, he that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, see verse 3, he predestined us to what end? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The apex of a disciple's privileges is found here. That through Jesus Christ and united to Jesus Christ, God's good pleasure is to adopt us as his children, his sons and daughters. John Owen, and you'll forgive me, someone asked me recently, have you ever preached a sermon where you didn't quote John Owen? And I thought, well, perhaps. (laughs) I'm not very sure. But listen to these words of John Owen. He said, Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is what? How would you complete? That's, as John Murray would put it, that's the protasis. What's the apodosis? Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is to reacquaint these believers in Ephesus. Paul had been their pastor, you remember, for upwards of two and a half years. But he knows that God's people need constantly to be reminded of their privileges. And here is the summit of gospel privileges. This is what a follower of Jesus Christ has been blessed with in the gospel through their union, their saving union to Jesus Christ. God has predestined them for adoption to himself according to his good pleasure to the praise of his glorious grace. Now in these verses you'll notice Paul has been detailing the variety of blessings that belong to every true disciple of Jesus Christ. He tells us in verse 4 that they are the recipients of God's electing mercy. He chose them in Christ from before the foundation of the world. They are ultimately disciples because in times eternal, the Heavenly Father predestined them to be disciples. That doesn't mean that we did not freely and willingly and gladly and constrainedly place our hope and trust alone in Jesus Christ, but it means this, friends, that to him all praise and glory belong. 
not unto us, O Lord, because we trace all our blessings back to the sovereign, inscrutable, glorious, predestinating counsels of Almighty God. And then he tells them that they were chosen to be holy and blameless. That's why you cannot live an unholy life and claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's utterly oxymoronic. Like British intelligence, it's utterly oxymoronic. You, you, I almost said American intelligence, but I thought that was a bit too, too near the bone. You, you cannot live an unholy life. And profess, well, you could profess to be a follower of Christ, but your life would betray you because we have been elected unto holiness and blamelessness. And then he tells them in verse 7 that in Jesus Christ they have the forgiveness of sins. But it is the blessing in verse 5 that I want to focus on with you this evening, where he tells us that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian tonight, if by the grace of God you have become a follower, it's, it's a great word, you know. We, we talk about being a Christian. It's the, the word's only used twice, isn't it, in the New Testament. A follower, because a Christian is not someone who simply has notional thoughts of Jesus who has correct apprehensions of Jesus, but who follows hard after Jesus. Follow me, Jesus said to those early men. Follow me. This is what belonging to me will mean for you. Follow me. Wherever I go, you will go. Whatever road I take, you will take. Whatever the cost, the pain, the suffering, follow me. And Paul tells us here that these followers have been accorded this summit of all privileges, the apex of all blessings, the omega point of all the blessings of God, adoption into the family of God. You know, it's, it's right, and we sang the words, didn't we, yesterday, was it? My sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to his cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But the gospel comes, not, dare I say this, not simply to pardon us, but to make us sons and daughters of the living God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I'm sure many of you know, captures this privilege beautifully in question 34. Now, whenever whenever I see this question 34, my mind goes back, I don't know how many years, and how long, how many years have Rebecca and Graham married? 12 years or something? A little over 12 years. Graham, Rebecca's husband now, um, Came, came to visit and 
By the age of 12, he had memorised the whole Shorter Catechism. And uh, we're sitting at dinner, and I said, Well, Graham, what is justification? Question 35. He said, uh, Oh, Mr. Hamilton, do you mean question 33? I, I said, No, 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 35. So he said, well, justification is an act of God's free grace, you know. Then I thought, oh, oh, it is 33. And I said to Graham, you, you should just have insisted. And he said, I, I didn't like to do that. Um, he wanted to win my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and you win a father's daughter, young men, when you win the father win the father, and you're likely to win the daughter. Question 34, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And I want to spend the remainder of our time unpacking that answer to question 34, Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges. Notice all the privileges of the sons of God. Three things in particular I want to notice with you. Number one, adoption is an act of God's free grace. It's not a process by which we become the adopted sons of God. Just as justification is an act of God's free grace, no less is adoption a singular punctiliar act whereby we are brought from being children of God's wrath into being the children of his love. It is an act, it is a declarative act of the Heavenly Father declaring that forgiven, justified sinners are not merely, dare I use the language, not merely his chosen servants, their family, their family. And you notice what we read here concerning those whom God adopts into his family. Who, do, who does God adopt into his family? Well, verses 3 and 4, those he chose from before the foundation of the world. Now, that might leave you thinking, but did he choose me from before the foundation of the world? How can I know? if he chose me from before the foundation of the world so that by his grace I could become one of his sons, how can I know that I have been chosen from before the foundation of the world? You know, the Bible's answer to that is so simple, so straightforward. Listen to Paul's words in Galatians 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
How do you know if you've been chosen from before the foundation of the world? To be the sons of the living God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the principal hallmark of a predestinated creature. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So adoption is an act of God's free grace. He's, he's not constrained to make us anything. He's not constrained to save us in the first place. Neither is he constrained to take forgiven sinners and crown them with the blessedness of being children of the living God. But he does so by his own free grace. But then secondly, notice that in adopting us, and this is assumed here, God gives us the right to be his children. Remember the words in John chapter 1, is it verse 12? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. I want to pause just for a moment to savor with you the astonished wonder of those words. To them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who is this God who adopts us as his children, who receives us as his sons and daughters? Who is he? He is the creator of all things. He is Yahweh, Vayahi Yahweh, the I am who is. He is the one who is neither beginning of days nor end of life. He is the one before whom all heaven bows in ceaseless adoration, unwearyingly ceaseless adoration and he is the father of those who receive his son Jesus Christ is the eternal son and through our union with him faith taking us into him God blesses us with sonship but maybe you, women, younger and older, are thinking, why does the New Testament speak of sons? Is this kind of gender-neutral Bible teaching? Well, actually, of course, you'll remember in 2 Corinthians 6, we read of sons and daughters. But actually, what Paul is doing here is elevating womanhood. You see, in the ancient world, only men, only males could inherit. Only men could receive the, the fullness of the patrimony of the Father. And the gospel comes. And in Christ, there is neither male nor female, bond nor slave, rich or poor, 
We are all one in Christ Jesus. And the gospel comes and it turns the value system of this fallen world upside down and inside out and says, women, God is elevating you. God is lifting you high. This world may look upon you as less than second-class citizens. A woman couldn't give testimony in court. You are the inheritors with your brothers of the living God. You see, if Jesus Christ is your master, if you belong to him, if, if you have become by his grace one of his followers, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are the most privileged and blessed being on planet earth tonight. The people of Kingsport may pass you by and not give you a second glance, but the whole of heaven looks at you with wonderment. You may be here tonight and you're feeling wretched at this moment. You may be here and your life is being overwhelmed with feelings of darkness and aloneness. Maybe for years you felt bereft. If the Lord Jesus Christ is your king and you're a disciple of his, maybe you think, ah, but Ian, I'm, I'm the poorest of disciples. You know, I couldn't care less. A spark is as much a flame as a torrent of fire. He doesn't snuff out the smouldering wick or, or, or quench just the, the tiniest of sparks. Remember Samuel Rutherford's great line, I'm held by a thread, but it's a thread of Christ's spinning. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you feel your life is hanging by a thread. But your hope is in Jesus Christ. You know that he is yours and you are his. You are the most blessed being this world has ever known or ever will know. Maybe you're thinking... Are you possibly speaking about me? Well, if through faith you've been united to Christ and become one of his followers, yes, I'm speaking about you and about myself. The Heavenly Father smiles upon all his children. He never, never, never stops smiling upon his own, even when we grieve him, fail him. He rejoices over us, Zephaniah 3.17, with loud singing. Says Owen, every day while we live is Christ's wedding day. He rejoices over us with unblemished delight. And you think, is that conceivably possible? With unblemished delight, does the Lord not know 
what I'm like, he knows what you are like better than you know what you are like. And he rejoices over you with loud singing. A few months ago, um, I had to do some work on Samuel Rutherford. And is that really the time? I've, I've not preached that long. I've just started. Samuel Rutherford wrote a letter to George Gillespie. George Gillespie was one of the stellar men in the Westminster Assembly. He was the youngest of the Westminster divines. He was a brilliant young man and had a profound influence on the Assembly. And Gillespie was dying. And Rutherford wrote to him. And there was a phrase in it that just captured immediately and captivated my mind. Rutherford said in his letter to Gillespie, Brother George, let not your apprehensions be canonical. And I said to Joan, would I need to explain that if I used that in a sermon? She said, I think you might. (laughs) Let not your apprehensions be canonical. The word canon in Greek means a rule. The canon of scripture is the rule of faith. And Rutherford was saying to Gillespie, let not what you apprehend be determinative of your life. Let your life not be ruled by your apprehensions, by your perceptions of yourself and your failures and your sins. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin and covers over us. Let not your apprehensions be canonical. Being a child of God, being one of the sons of God, means that we are loved with an everlasting love. You know, one of the great texts in the Bible, Jeremiah 31 It's either verse 2 or 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Gerhardus Voss, some of you will know that name, famous Dutch-American biblical theologian, so influential. He wrote, the reason he will never stop loving you is because he never began I have loved you with an everlasting love. He will never stop because he never began. But then thirdly, notice in God's adoption, the confession, the catechism says, you have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. All the privileges. The only Reformed confession of faith with a chapter on adoption is the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Heidelberg is is good, but it's not that good. Don't tell Joel Peakey I said that. (laughs) Joel's a dear friend. Let me read to you chapter 14 of the Westminster Confession and make seven brief, very, very brief observations It's the last time I'm going to be here. We're going home. We're heading back to Greenville tomorrow, so let me do that. 
Here is Westminster Confession, chapter 14. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth, that is, graciously grants, in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have God's name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Let me highlight the seven great truths, just briefly as we close. Number one, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, God is your Father. If I can leave you with anything tonight, it would be that. Jesus mentions the fatherhood of God ten times in Matthew 6 which is more times than you find in the whole of what we call the Old Testament. It's as if he's saying, now, are you getting it? Are you getting it? Your Father, your Heavenly Father. When you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. Your Heavenly Father knows. Your Heavenly Father cares ten times. This is God's new covenant name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The greatest privilege you have in life is speaking to the creator of the cosmos, the eternal I am, and calling him Father. When you're struggling to pray, when life is hard, just pause. This is what I do anyway. I pray the Lord's Prayer two or three times quietly. Our Father. We need our whole lives calibrated by the saving, loving fatherhood of God. God is your father. Number two, the son of God is therefore your elder brother. Hebrews 2 verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Now, many commentators think that's um, a figure of speech that What's really being said is that, 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 that Jesus is proud to call us brothers. Well, that's true, but I don't think that's the truth being taught in Hebrews 2. I think the writer is saying, this world despises you. This world is ashamed of you. But I need to tell you this, the Son of God is not ashamed to call you his brothers. He's not ashamed to stand alongside you. And to walk with you through the opprobrium of this world. Because you are his brothers. Third, the Holy Spirit is in you as the spirit of adoption. Romans 8, 15 and 16. It's by the spirit that we're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. You know... The language of the apostle there echoes that of the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus cries out, kratzain, kratzo, to, to cry out violently. 
And Paul is saying, the Spirit, by the Spirit, we, we discover the assurance of our adoption. But how, in the extremity of life, when all around our soul is giving way, when, when life is, is hard beyond words, when, when trials and troubles and difficulties and perplexities and disappointments flood our souls, what do we say, oh, great ground of being? No. We come, maybe with a broken heart, and we say, Father, That's the spirit of adoption. Number four, we are joint heirs with Christ of the glory of God. Don't have time, Romans 8, 17. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and take this in, joint heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I don't know how to expound that. I do not know. I can parse every word in that sentence. I can parse sentences with ease, but I don't know what that means but I know it's glorious. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ of the glory of God. That's the privilege of being a disciple, a follower. Number five, we have unhindered access to the throne of grace with boldness. There's a great story. It's a true story. Some of you will have heard it, no doubt. Around about the year, just, just a year or two after, I think, Queen Victoria died. So about 1903, 1904, a little boy was looking through the railings at Buckingham Palace in London, the residence of the monarch, and looking and just peering and seeing the soldiers. And this stranger comes up to him. Now, children, don't ever talk to strangers. <laughs> this stranger comes up and says, would you like to go in? Oh, said the little boy, I would love to go in. Took him by the hand and the gates opened up the long drive and the soldiers stood to attention and the great doors opened into the palace. The little boy had put his hand into the hand of the Prince of Wales, the king, the new king's son, and because he was attached to the son of the king, he had freedom of access, boldness of access. And so we have, we don't need to stand in line. We don't need to wait for appropriate moments. We don't need to go to priests. Wherever we are, in whatever state we are in, we can come with boldness, humble boldness, to the throne of grace. Sixthly, we have the grace of loving correction. The Father pities, protects, provides for, and chastens him as by a father because the Father loves his children so much he will do all that needs to be done to keep us in the way. Sometimes his disciplines can be hard to bear, but they're the disciplines of the one who spared not his only son 
and delivered him up for us all. That's why the cross is the test of everything, didn't it? It was Luther, wasn't it, who said, crux probat omnia, the cross is the test of everything. When we're struggling in any way, look to Calvary. He spared not his only son, but delivered him up for us all. And then finally, because we are his sons and his daughters, but heirs together of the grace of life, he provides for us and protects us like good fathers who will do everything in their power to ensure the protection of their children. We can't do it perfectly because of what we are and because of what this world is. But the Heavenly Father does it perfectly. He will not lose one of those whom he gave to his son and whom his son gave back to him. Not one. Not one. Not one will be lost. We might be bruised and battered. Our following Christ might lead us into deep, deep waters. But when through the deep waters he asks you to go, the rivers of grief shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Disciples are followers, but they're more than followers. They're children of the living God. That's your highest privilege in this life and in the life to come. It's your highest privilege. Live up to your privileges. Our greatest trouble I'll finish with Owen. Our greatest trouble is being unacquainted with our privileges. What a privilege. What a privilege. Children of dust. By nature, children of God's wrath but by his good pleasure and grace, the sons and daughters of his love. Amen.